Ken Loach's probably last film, The Old Oak, tells the story of Syrian refugees relocated in an old mining village in the northeast of England amidst poverty, resentfulness and anger. As ever though, Loach's message is one of compassion and hope. Dave Turner, who plays the lead character of TJ Ballantyne, the pub landlord, joined us at the Garden Cinema after a screening of the film for a chat with journalist Steve Topple, whose voice you might recognise from the Bella Chow discussion, which can also be found in this podcast series. Steve, Dave and the rest of the audience talked about Ken Loach's work, Dave Turner's foray into acting, compassionate and long-term solutions to the migration crisis, the cruelty of the current landscape and the way communities from different parts of the world can come together. Your background is very, very interesting, actually. You're not an actor, are you? You were in the fire service for 30 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an actor at all. I was in the fire service for 30 years, and I retired in 2014. Um, through links I'd made in the, in the trade union movement, I was offered a very small part in I, Daniel Blake, which I thought was great. Met Ken Loach, got a selfie with him, spent time with him. I thought that'll do me. Um, then a couple of years later, they came back to the northeast and um, got in touch and said, there might be something for you if you'd like to come along. So I went along again um, and I ended up getting a really nice season, Sorry We Missed You, which was a delight for me because uh, I'm a Newcastle United season ticket holder and the scene was a guy in a Newcastle shirt getting a delivery of a guy in a Man United shirt, which took no acting ability whatsoever. It was just a pure joy. Um, but then in 2019... I'd kept in touch with Paul Lowry, the scriptwriter, and um, we, we met up for a coffee. And we, at the time, I was working uh, behind the bar in, in, in a pub in a former mining community in County Durham, and we just had a chat about what's happened to the villages in that part of the world. And Paul was already having conversations with um, refugee groups and such like. And it ended up uh, I drove Ken, sorry, I drove Paul, and then a few months later. It was in June 2019, I drove Ken and Paul around the villages in, in County Durham, which have been decimated in the, in the last 50 years. And then COVID hit. So everything was put on hold for 18 months at least. And then I think it was um, September, October 2021, things sort of came, so got back into gear and, um, and here we are. Um, so no, it's... Um, I was sitting, as I said, we did a Q&A at BAFTA the other night and the, the, the guy said, it was so, what's it like to fulfil your ambition to act? And I said, I've never wanted to act. I've, <laughs> genuinely, I've got no desire to do this again. Um, um, it, it, I fell into it by luck and chance and because of the people that Ken has around him who are wonderful, generous, caring people, you know, um, I somehow managed to get through it. But you, so I'm going to pick up on something you said just then. So you've, you've just had one of the lead roles in what might be Ken Loach's final film, yet you don't want to do this again? Really? God, no. Why, why have you come to that conclusion? I'm interested. Well, I, I, two things. One, it's definitely his last film. He will do other things, um, but he won't make another feature film. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um I couldn't have done this for anybody other than Ken Loach. Um, the anxiety, the imposter syndrome I had leading up to it was was crippling. Um, you know, I've told the story a few times, but um, Ken doesn't rehearse, never rehearses a scene at all. But the opening scene where the bus arrived in the village, it was going to be very complex. And at that time, they weren't sure they were going to 
film it the way they did with photographs. So we actually had to rehearse that scene. And um, at the end of that day, I just thought, I've got no business being here. The guy who had the black and white shirt on, Rocco Neil, he's a he's a proper actor, you know. He's he's making a film now up in Scotland for Rebecca O'Brien, who's the producer of this, and he's brilliant. And I watched him, and I just thought, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> That's genuine. And I I we had a reception that night. It was a Thursday night, and um, I was just standing there thinking, how do I get out of this? And I mean, it genuinely. Um, and then a fabulous, incredible woman called Anita Broly, who was the lead makeup lady on the film, um, saw something. Didn't doesn't know didn't know me at all at the time. She saw something and she just came across. And it was in my contract that I couldn't get my hair cut for four months, in the lead up of the film. And they've actually told me not to get my hair cut again for a month before we came here. So I can't wait to go to the barbers. But. Um, <laughs> So I was just standing there and she came up to me and she just she said, I'm just going to titivate your hair a bit. And she did that. And then she said, um, I'll go and have a word with Ken. Next thing she comes back and she said, um, right, Ken said I can do something with your hair. Come on. And this is hand on heart. I was walking up those stairs towards the makeup room and I was genuinely, genuinely thinking, what illness can I feign to get out of this? I I was absolutely crippled. I thought, and the following day was the first day's filming, just for me. The following day was Friday the 13th. So I walked up to, with Anita, and she sat me in a chair. I remember the odd thing that she said, but after about 20 minutes, I got out of a chair, thanked her, and not for one minute did I think this is going to be a piece of cake, but I walked in there thinking, I can't do this. And I walked out of there thinking, I might have a chance of doing this. So Anita Broly, God bless her, um, was the person. And every day I sat in the makeup chair because the film was 30 and a half days and I think I was there 29 of them. So every day I sat in a makeup chair and she just talked this absolutely wonderful little Irish voice just every day, just kept reassuring us and reassuring us. If it hadn't been for the likes of Anita and other people in the cast, Trevor Fox, who takes the role of Charlie, um, I, I, I couldn't have got through it. So I don't think that uh, any other um, filmmaker other than Ken creates that atmosphere. You know, everyone who's uh, who's spoken to me has said, you know, Ken's films are unique. Now, I don't want to put myself in the position where there's egos and stuff like that, because the, there's no egos in Ken's film. You know, there's no cars. Everyone just gets in the van. One day I could be sitting next to Ken. The next day I could be sitting next to the lad bringing the sandwiches. There's no hierarchy. The person who's there for one day is as important as the person who's there all the way through. And I'm being constantly told that that's not the case elsewhere. So I've done three Ken Loach films, and uh, if that's the lot, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. I mean, obviously, on reflection, completely unfounded concerns on your part, because you were bloody brilliant um, in the film, but... That that I suppose that um, feeling that you had at the start of the film then must have been even more heightened because you then rock up at like Cannes, don't you for for the festival there? To be blunt, Cannes was a doddle. Oh really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Absolute doddle. We'll finish filming um, in the in the July. We'd finished, done the six weeks. We had to come back ten days later to film at the gala, which is the second 
uh, Saturday in July every year. It's my favourite day of the year. If you've never been, you get the chance, go. It's it's an incredible day. Um, so we'd, we'd, we'd finish filming and then you just hear nothing for months in terms of what's going on then. About three months later, I got invited down to London to go in the editing suite and watched Ken and Jonathan do the editing. And um, Jonathan Jonathan said to me, he says, um, we're just cutting your your best scene in the film now. And I went, all right. And it was a scene in the cathedral. And I just said, Jonathan, I don't say a word. <laughs> and he said, exactly. He says, but you listen. And it, I watched myself. I mean, I, I, I think this is. I mean, I only came in towards the end of the film there, but I mean, um, I know what he means now. I can say that, but um, the anxiety I had was crippling because all the way through filming, and Ken has people have worked with him for forty years, and I, people kept saying it was with the, the best of intentions. You know, don't worry, you'll be going to Cannes next year. Ken always goes to Cannes. I was like, thanks, Helpful. thanks, yeah. So I got the point where I was thinking, right, if this doesn't go to Cannes, it's on me. Because <laughs> I'm the lead actor, so if it's if it's if it's crap, it's on me. Um, so I got I got the phone call. It was in um, April. Um, I knew they were going to announce the, um, the entrance in the cup, the competition entrance on the Thursday morning, and I was just sitting at home in my phone, and it's still surreal to see Ken Loach ringing. And I looked at Ken Loach. I was like, "Hi, Ken." And he was like, "Hi, Dave. You better get a bow tie. We're in." <laughs> and um. I mean, he he was over the moon. He was ecstatic. And to be honest with you, the minute I knew we were in Cannes, I just felt a physical burden off my shoulders because I knew I can't be that bad if we're in Cannes. <laughs> and that was so. I went to Cannes and just enjoyed every minute of it. I had no nerves, no anxiety. It was it was absolutely exceptionally and enjoyable. Um, but last Saturday, last Thursday, we did a premiere in Newcastle, and I was terrified. <laughs> Home turf, though, so exactly. I mean, you, you talked briefly before about the fact that Ken doesn't tend to rehearse as well. As a, as a, um, I suppose, untrained actor, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because watching the film, I don't know, it might have just been me. Some of the scenes, a lot of it felt improvised dialogue that you were kind of working as you went along, and if there's no rehearsal, then I, I'm no, going to guess it was the case. Is that better or worse for someone like, who's got no... With, with my vast acting experience, with your vast yeah. acting experience, yeah. I Dave, mean, I, what I mean, do you what, think? what Ken does, he does a lot of takes. Um, some scenes, there might be fourteen takes. In the scene in the pub where they're talking about the house, the, the house value, and you know, Charlie said it's only worth eight grand. We're screwed and all that. Um, I think we did that scene about forty times because Ken tends to use one camera, and because there were so many people in, what to keep redoing it. Um, until we got what Ken wants. Um, so there's no rehearsal. The, the, the only rehearsal we did was for the first scene because logistically that had to try and work out camera angles. Um, there is a script, you know. I, I, I've got to make sure I say that because there's a sort of this myth going around that you can just wing it. You can't. <laughs> you know, Paul Laverty, the script right now is, is, you know, one actor in one of his films made a comment that, you know, we're just improvised and Paul was not happy. There is a script. Um, you're allowed a little bit of latitude, um, but if you, you're not allowed just to just say whatever comes into your head, there's the odd line that I put in, and if Ken likes it, it stays in. 
there's one lane in where the massive two dogs are coming down the street and I just say, you could put a saddle on that bastard, <laughs> right? Ken burst out laughing and he said, right, that's staying in. That, that wasn't in the script. Um, but no, there is a script. Um, excuse me, the thing with a script is though you, you don't get it in advance. Um, you get, at best you get it the night before. So a normal day for me would be get there for seven, be on set for 8.30, work till about six, seven, eight o'clock at night, depending on the day. Then back to the centre where we were at Merton. Um, wardrobe, makeup, and then walking out the door, and the assistant director would hand you an A4 envelope. So by the t- it was a half an hour drive home for me. So by the time I got home, um, walked my dog, different dog to that one, walked my dog, had a shower, grabbed a sandwich, it was 10 o'clock at night. Then you had to start learning the script for the following day. Um, so that was tough. The only scene where I got a, a, the script in advance was the scene where I talk at the table after the dogs died. And that's the only, I got that a couple of weeks in advance and Ken just said, um, there's no way I could ask you to learn this overnight. So I got that about two, two and a half weeks beforehand. Um, but the rest of it was, no. On, on, in some scenes, you didn't get the, the script till the actual day. There's a few times where I went in for lunch and I didn't know what was gonna happen in the afternoon. Um, and he does that deliberately because and he sh- obviously shoots in sequence so you, you, at the start of the film I've got no idea what's going to happen to the character nobody does because you shoot in sequence and you only get the script as you go so you don't, you don't even have an understanding of the character really at the start I just had a rough outline and then you get to know more and more um, but it's, uh, it's an incredible incredible way to film and Trevor Fox who played Charlie is that he's the, the one character the one actor in the film who's got a major role who's an actor he's, he's got a you know he's been at the National Theatre he's touring with a play now which is coming to the West End for seven weeks um, and he found it difficult he found it really difficult he was like I'm not used to this he says I want my script I've got to learn my script he found it more difficult than I did because he's a trained actor and this is not the way trained actors like to to be to be sort of dealt with. So, no, it was it was an incredible experience. I've been incredibly lucky. Um, you know, it's and I've, I mean, I've been really fortunate that Ebla Marie, who played um, Yara in the film, and Claire Rogerson, who played Laura, have become friends for life. And I mean, Ebla lives in the Golan Heights, which is Israeli occupied territory. Um, she's of Syrian descent, but she's not allowed to go into Syria. Um, and the film was delayed for two weeks while we tried to get a visa for Ebla. I mean, she struggled to get to Cannes. I mean, we've been invited to go to Hamburg next weekend because Ken can't go and um, Ebla can't go. She wouldn't be able to get travel documents in time. So it's an incredible, incredibly difficult for Ebla um, to just be there. But I mean, I've got to say, I mean, the scene in the cathedral, it, um, I think she's wonderful. I think she's beautiful, talented and gifted. And I genuinely think she's going to go on to great things if she's allowed to. That's the big issue, if she's allowed to. Uh, there's so many obstacles put in her path to try and do what she wants to do. But I really hope that she gets the opportunity because she's absolutely incredible. And on that, I, I mean, for Ebla and for yourself, you're dealing with issues which, I'm making a presumption here about yourself, but you're, you know, you're Northern. Um, you're dealing with issues which you probably, Ebla obviously has lived experience of, and I assume you 
have lived experience of what's gone on in northern communities over 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 decades. How was that for both of you dealing with an issue that was so close to home? Well, it's an area I've you know I'm born and bred in the northeast of England, as you can probably tell by my voice. Um, and Ken, this is what I'll just say to you: this is what Ken says. Why he prefers to use non-professional actors? He says. It wouldn't be real if he'd got four actors from London to come up and put the accent on. You know, like he says, my voice reflects who I am. It reflects my experiences. So I'm I'm proud of the part of the world where I come from. I've lived there virtually all my life. But the part the, the, the part that we filmed in, it's not on my doorstep. But I say, you say it's half an hour away, and it's um, been left to rot. And I've had to say to a few people that the scenes you see, that's not sets. That's genuine. The houses, you have rows upon rows upon rows of houses boarded up, shops boarded up. I mean, nearly all the villages in that part of the world, the pubs have gone, the clubs have gone. There's no post offices, there's no banks, there's no libraries. There's no support for the, the communities. And that was the, the interesting part that Paul found was you've got a community here who are on the knees. There's no employment, there's no hope, there's no optimism for them. So what happens when you introduce another community who've come from a far worse position, have been through absolute hell, and you put them two communities together. And that's what actually happened in 2015. Um, Durham County Council was one of the first councils to bring in Syrian refugees. And a lot of, you know, some of the critics have said it's a fairy tale and all that. Everything that happened in the film, including eating together, that actually happened in communities in County Durham around that time. So it's not a fairy tale, it's not a documentary, but it's based in reality. Ebla found it particularly difficult because she's of Syrian descent, but she's never lived in Syria. Now, all the people who take the parts of Syrians in the family, sorry, in the film, the families, they are all genuine Syrian refugees, every single one of them. The lady in the wheelchair who's lost her legs, uh, I mean, she lost her husband, her son, and her daughter, and her legs in a bomb blast. Now, to listen to her talk, it's, it's, it's just incredible. So Ebla faced a little bit of a turmoil in her own head because she was playing somebody from Syria without having that experience. But she couldn't have done that without the generosity of the Syrian families who welcomed her and they helped her with her accent because she was so wanted to be right. She wanted to have the right accent. We couldn't tell the difference, but she knew the Syrians would. And that was so important. So she spent a lot of time getting it right and dealing with them. But, you know, I mean, there was there was one young lad on the film and he was a little bit disruptive. And it was one of the first scenes and people were getting annoyed with him. And then I was told, and he plays the the the, the, the tall son, the youngest lad of the family, and he's the eldest son and he's 13-year-old and we're filming that. And he's got a, you can't really see it in the film, he's got a huge scar on his forehead there. That's from shrapnel from a mortar bomb which blew his cousin up who was standing six feet away from him. So you can't even imagine what that 13-year-old boy has gone through. So, you know, any issues that we had, you know, pale into insignificance when you, you, you hear those stories. And yet they were all willing to put themselves on film, open themselves up in such a manner which was incredibly humbling for all of us. Um, Ken and Paul found it ex extremely difficult because um, they spent a lot more time them than I did, but the generosity of spirit was absolutely incredible. And it, it's, I, I just, I, I mean, I hope that, I think we're quite confident 
that we've done the Syrian community justice. There's been a little bit of criticism that we've underplayed it. But there will be a different, a slightly extended version coming out on DVD and Blu-ray and whatever um, in, a, in a while. And there's going to be a couple of scenes in that that were cut out of the film just because it was deemed that they were probably not graphics, the wrong word, because they were, but they were just too confrontational in terms of the story of some of the Syrian families. That's really interesting. Thank you for, sh- for, for sharing that. And I mean, in the film, TJ is almost the bridge between, or trying to be, I suppose, the bridge between these two communities. And it's, I mean, it's, it, I don't know, again, for me, I don't know what everyone else thinks. I'm going to throw to questions in a minute. It's very interesting, live, so, you know, living in a, I live on a council estate in South London, um, and I've I've never lived up north. But there's similarities between you know really impoverished estates in London, and impoverished areas up north. And seeing on film what I know is reality in terms of that you have white, well predominantly white working class people who are not inherently racist. They're not inherently racist. They've just been screwed over for decade after decade after decade. Um, and then seeing it juxtaposed with the you know refugees coming in who have led horrendous lives, you don't often see those two sides put together. It, the, the narrative, especially around working-class communities, is often missed out, and we're never going, in my opinion, we're never going to progress until both sides are heard and, and understood, which is what this film tries to demonstrate I think with TJ being the bridge between these two sides I mean do you think that that the film achieves that goal of showing both sides of the reality of the situation I mean I hope so I mean Paul's script was so beautifully done because it would have been very easy to stereotype the people in the in the pub as you know swastika wear and you know angry but they're not the you know, the the people who've been beaten down by the system. And I think we've, we've been talking about this quite a lot in the last few weeks, obviously. And there's one scene which Ken and Paul and I have discussed. And it's a scene where after the, the pub's been flooding, I, think, I go to Charlie's house and I just say, you're not a stupid man, how have you become this? And I think that's the question that the film asks for the local community is, why have good people with a traditional background of solidarity and strength and community being put in a position where they're angry, there's hate, there's resistance to anybody coming from outside. And I've seen that, you know, it, it, it's it's prevalent in all parts of the Northeast as well as other parts of the country, you know. And um, it's not going to change the world, we know that, the film. But, I mean, I, what I've said is, you know, I mean, I hope people come with an open mind, you know, they put aside what they might read or hear. You know, I mean, these are you know these are people who've come from a war zone, and when they came into County Durham, yes, there was a welcome, but there was also an awful lot of resistance, and I think that Paul has managed to capture the spirit of what's happened in the sense of them. Um, if you take a good, if you, if a person has no hope in their lives, then they only see negativity, and what's happening in the northeast is that the far right are now seeing that as a fertile ground. So the far right are, are very, very, very active in the northeast of England now, and it's becoming really dangerous situation with the um, with the, with the far right, and that the the war the coming into villages which fifty, sixty years ago that have been driven out, 
You know, the, the North East has a strong tradition going back to the 30s. You know, Mosley was chased out of villages and, ch- you know, the fascists were chased out. Now, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was a member of the Labour Party. I, I'm no longer a member, but I used to, before the last election, I went around knocking on doors and leafleting thousands of doors. And um, you met with a hostility, which I've never experienced before. Um, and there's more people prepared to be openly racist. I mean, I, when we talked to Paul about this before, before filming, I mean, I just said that, um, you know, I would stand behind a bar in this village in County Durham and I wasn't allowed to challenge the racism. They're punters to keep me going. Don't see anything. So I had to stand there and I, time after time after time, I was just stand there listening and I heard language that I haven't heard since the 70s. Phraseology, which I thought would have been gone and it's back and it's been used repeatedly casually, repeatedly, people don't even think about it and it's not challenged. It's just become the norm. Um, you know, I mean, I got off the tube last night at Whitechapel and I walked down Whitechapel Road to my hotel and I mean, I don't know the background of the community, I don't know, I was there for one day but that's not a scene you'll see in the northeast of just a complete diverse community. I mean, you'll see in the west end of Newcastle a small there's a small um, Pakistani, um, Bangladeshi and Indian communities side by side. But in the villages, it's they predominantly have been white and they've got no one to blame. So when, when things are, like I said in the film, when the life goes to crap, you look for a scapegoat and that's what's happening and that's why, it's along with an answer, but that's why the, the far right are now becoming frighteningly active in the northeast. It's It's, it's a really, really, really worrying time. No, absolutely. We'll we'll continue kind of on this discussion. I, I ju- just want to throw it over to the audience now for though. On what you just, I don't know if it's working or not. Thank you very much, by the way, for coming. Um, on on what you just said about the strength and solidarity in the community, I noticed that the banner said strength, solidarity, and resistance, and I wondered if there had been any discussion about what that third word was. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it's a great slogan, and you know. Uh, Ken's very keen, to, you know, Ken's been, for 87-year-old, the energy and anger he's still got is incredible. You know, Ken's at the forefront of trying to organise some form of resistance because obviously the Labour Party's not open to him anymore. So Ken and other people are trying to think of a way of forming some sort of coalition of people whereby they can look away for, find a way forward. But let's be honest, it's not going to be easy. You know, I mean, um, the one thing I have to say... Um, you know, I've said it before, and I and I, I do get a bit preachy, but I, uh, we're living in a, a country now where people who come from other parts of the world are demonised and dehumanised, and this is what's happening. It, it's made. This is another. It's an enabler for people in the northeast who their life is not great. You know, when you've got the Home Secretary making the speech she made two days ago, absolutely despicable. Want to change? our obligation under international law, under human rights. When they talk about swarms and invasions, you know, in small boats, I mean, I guarantee every time you turn the television on, at some point in the news at the minute, there'll be a mention of small boats. It's not, it's people. And this is, working with the Syrian families, it's made me much more aware than I was. Um, Because... When you've got people who've come from a war zone and they've gone through what they've gone through, they've lost, they've, they bear the physical and emotional scars of what they've gone through, and they come here and after here, our Home Secretary using language like she's done, and I, I personally find it immoral what she said, 
and what some of the other politicians have said. But in terms, the only way that there can be any sort of resolution to this is resistance is for people to organise, for people to, to get up, to stop being lethargic and just say there's nothing I can do. We've got to be more proactive. We've got to stand up and, and challenge these statements. You know, If you're so desperate you're willing to put your child in a boat to cross the channel, how bad must your life be? You know, the percentage of economic migrants, as I say, is negligible. You know, we've got a lot to answer for for the West for what's happened to these countries, and we're shirking our responsibilities. You know, we should. The people coming to this country can be a massive benefit to the community that can bring so much. And we should be looking at that rather than de, you know, dehumanising them. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, when we were at Cannes, you know, there was a few people asked Ken questions about stuff like that, and he gets so angry. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a very difficult situation at the moment. The film is about hope and about optimism, but if I, if I'm totally blunt, I don't have sorry much hope or optimism at the moment. I don't see a way forward. When you, with two main political parties seem to be in some sort of tacit agreement that you know uh, the way they're going to deal with things, and I, I I genuinely fear when young people are growing up in communities like we've talked about where they've got no hope and no optimism and they see another community coming in it's very very easy to scapegoat them and think that my life has gone to crap because of them and that's what the mainstream media are pushing by and large that's what the politicians are pushing and to me it's 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 immoral it's repugnant it's despicable and i hope that people will see for what it is and just you know i make this plea to everybody you know i mean the film's not going to change the world. You might like the film, you might not like the film. But just try and get some of your friends to come and say, it's on release from today. It's Studio Canal are pushing it massively. It's in over 250 cinemas. It's one of the biggest pushes I've had for a Ken Loach film. So get your friends to come along. Your friends who you think might have suspect opinions, who you've heard them say in the, the odd comment, which you think is a bit strange. Get people along. You know, It's not going to change the world, but if it starts a few conversations... And challenges an opinion here and there, that's a start. And that's all we can hope for. So, I mean, I'm conscious we're running out of time. So, I mean, I don't know if that's going to be... Yeah. I'm afraid we are going to yeah. have to cut it there. So, well, um, can I just say thank you? Thank you to everybody for coming. You know, and I mean, I really appreciate your time. Thank you.